The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Well, good morning, everybody. I was listening to Rod play that that's that hymn, uh, just in the introduction part, and uh, the, some hymns are so rich and so good and heart stirring. And I thought about the message, and I just it dovetailed together beautifully. I thought, oh well, we we mess up the order of service often enough. It won't hurt to mess it up again. We'll just add that hymn in. So thanks, Rod, for playing that. Take your Bibles, please, the Book of Ephesians in chapter one or chapter two. Sorry. And we'll read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And the Bible says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly live in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's again ask for God's help, shall we? Loving Father, we come before you, and Father, we don't know why it is that you would set your love upon us. Father, we don't know. We can't even begin to comprehend the depths of the riches of your love and your grace and your mercy toward us. It is beyond the heart of man to comprehend it. But, Father, we can say this morning with a great assurance, we know in whom we have believed. And we are convinced that he is able. Father, he will finish the work in us. Father, we cry out to you this morning as we open the Scriptures together that you would finish the work in us. Do that bit of work that you're doing today, this hour, as we come before your word. Oh God, we plead with you that you would do a work in the heart of every single person in this room. Father, for those that know you and have begun to walk with you, Father, we plead that you would strengthen them in their walk this morning. Encourage them. Lift up the failing knees. Raise the chin gently. Encourage the downhearted and the discouraged and those that are fearful. 
But, Father, we also cry out to you for those in this room that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, do not know what it really means to be forgiven, to be set free. Father, we cry out to you that the Spirit of God might move in their heart. Father, awaken faith and repentance. Father, show them through the pages of Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit, the beauty and the loveliness of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might see and believe. Oh God, we cry out to you for help. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. There are a lot of things that people do for their own glory. They'll climb great mountains. They'll run great lengths. They'll bicycle across half of France or Italy. They'll uh, conquer great fears, do all kinds of things to gain themselves some form of renown or recognition or fame. Maybe they'll even win the premiership after 37 years of not winning the premiership like Richmond did yesterday. It's a great win. And that they, it seems like in our day, we spend more time or half our time earning some great feat or accomplishing some great thing, and the other half of our time building monuments and celebrating and giving out awards for what has been done. You go watch the Hollywood scene. It's, it's, it's all it's about. They spend half the year making a movie and the other half of the year going to award ceremonies for the movies that they performed in. And they pile up Oscars and Emmys and Logies and all other weird kind of names they give for their awards. And you know what the sad thing is? Those awards no sooner won than forgotten. Left to sit on some shelf gathering dust. Not remembered. We have to keep reminding ourselves, well, this is the Oscar-winning actor or actress, because we quickly, we quickly forget. No sooner won, no sooner finished than forgotten like some statue in a park that only the pigeons remember and flock to and sit on, and everybody else walks by oblivious to who that man was or who that person was and what they accomplished in their time. But God's work is for his glory, but man's, all his attempts are for his own glory. Man's attempts for his glory are almost always self-centered. I did it to get the glory for my name. And you say, yes, and God's attempts for glory are always successful, and he always does them for the glory of his own name. But the beautiful thing is, he shares that glory with us. His accomplishing glory for His name also brings us tremendous and great benefits and great blessings. He saved us for the glory of His name. But we don't just sit in the back corner and look at it from afar off and share nothing in it. He also gathers us to be with Him, to share in that glory, to rejoice and revel and enjoy the glory of our God who has saved us. God saved us, as we saw last week, because we were desperately in need to be saved. God saved us by making us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together with Christ. He seated us together with Christ. Isn't that a great theme? Those words, together with Christ. 
If you forget everything else I said this morning, remember those three words, together with Christ, or this simple phrase, in Christ. He has fastened us together with the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved us by putting us together, and we're going to reign with him in a day to come. So what is God's goal in saving us? You might wonder that men do all kinds of things for certain goals and monuments and awards. What's God's goal? What's his end game, if you like, in saving us? Well, as I said a minute ago, God's goal in saving us is like everything else. It's the glory of his name. God saved us, but for three purposes, and we can see them in this passage. Number one, he saved us so that he may boast of, sorry, he may show the riches of his glory in grace toward us in kindness in Christ Jesus. He show, he saved us so that he might display the riches of his grace. Secondly, he, he saved us so that no one may boast. I'm so glad that we get together. We don't look at each other at con and smack each other on the shoulder and say, hey, we got saved. You know, we can boast because, you know, God saved us because we're special. Well, we're special, but that's not why God saved us. We can't boast. There's no grounds for boasting in the way that God has saved us. He saved us, thirdly, that we may walk in good works. And I want to go through, and I want to take the text, and I want to go phrase by phrase and unpack what this text is saying and show you these three great purposes. But I want you to keep one thing in the back of your mind. Each of these purposes for which God saves us contributes to Him, to His glory. So He saved us so that He may show the riches of His grace to the glory of His name. So he saved us so that none may boast except in Christ to the glory of God's name. He saved us so that none, so we may walk, sorry, in good works to the glory of his name. So purpose number one then is this. God saved us to display his grace to all creation. Notice the text in verse number seven. The Bible says, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in grace in Christ Jesus. So what do these words mean? Well, the word so that introduces us to a purpose, one purpose for which God saved us. The phrase, in the ages to come, defines when it is that he will show the surpassing riches of his grace. Now, some would say that's referring to eternity, like the age to come. But that doesn't really make sense. That's not what the text says. It says, in the ages to come, or the coming ages, plural. The word, therefore, coming can actually mean in the succeeding ages. In one age after another, he will display the riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. So the best way I can understand this is to say that in the succeeding ages, God will display his grace to all from one age to the next. From one year to the next, one decade to the next, one century to the next, from time into eternity, God will use His saving of us to display the riches of His grace. 
God's grace is so rich. Paul says that God might show. Now, in the Greek, it's something called a subjunctive tense. And you probably think, what's a subjunctive? And you don't really care, and I don't blame you. I didn't want to know when I found out either. But what it actually means is it has two ideas wrapped up in it. Idea number one is it's possible. And idea number two is it's intentional. So you could say that God may show the riches of his grace, or you can also equally accurately say God will show the riches of his grace to us. And in fact, it's kind of both put together. God is going to, and God will at times, display the magnificence of the riches of his grace toward us. He saved us so that everybody could see the glory of his grace. Paul says he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. Now, both of those words are what we call superlatives. They're in the extreme. They're in the highest level. Surpassing means extreme, extraordinary, beyond all comparison. Riches means the idea of the wealth of his grace, the greatness of the grace, the lavishness of his grace. One of the phrases I love in this NASB, back in chapter 1 and verse 8, says, which he lavished, speaking of his grace, which he lavished on us. I don't know what it is about the word lavish, just the way it sounds. Maybe it reminds me of lamington. I don't know. It just, it's the idea of just pouring out, oozing over like a great big uh, bowl of chocolate just flowing over. It's just a lavish. It's, it's rich. It's beautiful. It's overabundance. God poured out his lavish grace on us. One commentator translated the phrase like this. He said, it's very simply, the very, very great grace of God. And I thought, you know what? That's a great way to say it. Just piling up superlatives. It's a Hebrew and a Greek literary device that just says there's just so much. You just can't begin to comprehend. It seems like no matter how much you, you understand and discover of the grace of God, there's always an infinite more to understand. And you never get to the end of it. And Paul says, look, he saved us that he might display the riches of his grace toward us. So what does it all mean? Firstly, God has saved us to display the riches of his grace to us. He wants you and I as recipients of that grace to see it for ourselves, to see it in our own life. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1. He says this, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul understood his being saved was God's grace being revealed to him. It was God's work of grace. He saw it himself. And you and I can look back and we can see in our own lives the way that God's grace has been working all through our lives. Paul saw his own salvation as a a display of God's grace toward him. And we can see God's grace in time past preserving us until we believed. We can see God's grace working to bring us to faith in Christ. Sit down this afternoon. Get a pen and paper out. And write down some of the stories of your life before you came to know Christ. Write down your testimony. Think it through. 
Think about the people that were involved, the events that led up to it, the different stories, the different things that came through. Ask God to show you and remind you the story of how he brought you to faith. And what you're going to discover, as I did, looking through it, is God's immense grace working in all different kinds of ways to draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ, to help us, to unveil for us the wonder of the story of salvation and to save us. And you will do like I did, and begin to praise God in your heart because you realize the grace of God that is a work all through your life. The ways that God preserved you to bring you there, to see you saved. We will see the grace of God in our own lives taking us through the valleys of dark places. We will see the grace of God in our lives enabling us to endure sufferings and trials and tribulations, carrying us through the fires and the sword, possibly of martyrdom. We'll see the grace of God finishing the work in us that when Christ returns in power and glory. God saved us to display to each of us the grace at work in our own lives. But God also saved us to display the surpassing riches of His grace in our lives to people around us. This is what Paul said, talking about Christians in Acts chapter 11, verses 21 to 23. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Antioch gets saved. They hear about it all the way back over in Jerusalem. They send Barnabas. He comes trucking across the desert to see them. He gets there. He observes. And what does he see? The grace of God at work in these men and women's lives. Others will see the grace of God in our life and they'll glorify God because of it. Why is it so good for us to share testimonies to hear how each of us came to know the Lord. Why is it so good for us to share some of the experiences as long as it becomes a thing in which we glorify God with each other? So when I hear the story about how God is working in your life, it greatly encourages me and it gives me an opportunity, a new level, if you like, to honor and praise and worship the God who saved us. Brother and sister in Christ, just as a side for a second, throughout this week, as you walk and as you see God doing things in your life, take note. I don't mean the big things. I mean the little tiny things, the little tiny graces of God that are always at work in your life. God is using them to shape you and make you more like Christ, more into His image. The unbelievers will see the grace of God at work in us and toward us. And listen, the most profound evangelical witness that we can make is a life that is consistently lived to honor the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. That's the most powerful witness you've got. I absolutely believe 100% that we should preach the gospel Open our mouth and speak the truth. How will they know unless we do that? God has called us to do that. But the reality is also true. There's nothing more damaging to the gospel than a life that is lived inconsistent with the gospel message. And when we live 
portraying the gospel everywhere we go in the actions, in the responses of our lives to others and the things that are going on, that tells a great story. And then when we open the scriptures and share the message of the gospel behind those responses, that is more powerful than anything else. But it's got to be together. The unbelievers will see the grace of God at work in us. The angelic host will see the grace of God toward us. And they long to look into these things. They long to understand this. I envy the angels in one thing. They get to see the glory of God face to face for all of existence. But I don't envy them on another level. Because angels have no idea what it is to be saved, to be forgiven. Angels cannot experience forgiveness, but we can. We can experience the riches of the grace of God. The demonic forces will see the grace of God toward us. Thirdly, God saved us to display the surpassing riches of His grace toward us that is infinitely beyond His common grace to all men. God pours out grace to all men all the time. Look outside there. Right now it's sunshine. In 15 minutes, it'll be pouring rain, and in half an hour, it'll be back to sunshine again. This is Melbourne. We all know that. But you know the Bible tells us? He pours out His rain and His sunshine on both the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. So all men in all the world experience something of the common grace of God. His preserving, working in their lives before they're saved and whether or not they'll ever be saved. But this grace is something so much bigger and so much more. It's God's grace to save us. And God is showing us the riches of His grace beyond just that common grace of sunshine and rain and all those other things. He's showing us the grace by which He saved us. God saved us to glorify His own name in the display of His grace toward us. The Bible says in Galatians 1, verses 22 to 24, I was still unknown by sight to the church. This is Paul writing, sorry. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. Who, who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. God saved us to glorify his own name in the display of his grace towards us. Listen, Christian. He poured out grace on you to save you, to bring glory to His name in the fact that He saved you. That's amazing. You say, isn't that kind of like a, pardon the analogy, like an older woman who bakes her special fudge brownies and she's always boasting about her fudge brownies. She wants everybody to try one because, you know, her fudge brownies are so special. And she's always kind of trying to get praise for her fudge brownies that she baked. And in one sense, it almost sounds pathetic. And you say, isn't God like that? Like that old woman trying to get praise for something that she has done? And the answer is yes, and a thousand times no. Yes, he is like that because he is trying to get praise for his name. But the difference is he totally deserves it, whereas the little old lady with her fudge brownies that have too much salt in them don't deserve it at all. You see the difference? We try and get praise for ourselves and heap it up for ourselves, but we don't deserve anything. The difference is He is God. 
He is worthy of all praise, of all men, of all creatures, even the rocks and the stones, the Bible says, would cry out if we didn't open our mouths. He deserves the praise and the honor and the glory. And He saved us that we might display the riches of His grace and glorify Him who gave it to us. Purpose number two, that we can, that God saved us is this, God saved us so that no, none of us could boast. Notice again the text of God's holy word, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God saved us by His grace. By grace. Now, we've been talking about that for weeks on end. What's grace? It's the unearned favor of God. It's the means by which God saves us. It's God turning His face toward us in love and favor and goodness. That's God's grace. Grace is the love and benevolence of God poured out on us. But how do we actually receive this grace? That's a good question to ask. It says, through faith. So faith is like the means or the channel through which we experience and receive God's grace toward us. So think of it like this. A water pipe or like a fire hose is a better way to look at it. And the hose itself is a channel, it's a tube through which the water flows and gets to its destination. It governs and guides the water along. So God's grace and through faith is like God's water through a tube. So then what is faith? You ask that question. And faith, we'd say, is trusting someone to keep their promises. Faith is a conviction that they will keep their promises. Faith is not something that we produce or develop in ourselves. Faith is, uh, rather, it's aroused or awakened as we grasp or realize the trustworthiness of the person we're trusting in. Let me give you an illustration. Who's ever had a salesman come to your front door, knock on the door? I'm here to tell you why you're paying too much power, cost for your power. Or they're always trying to tell me why I'm paying too much. Or I'm here to tell you how you can get solar panels on your roof with all your neighbors or something like that. And, and my instinctive reaction is to step backwards, get the door, and bang, and I go close. And I don't want to hear about it. But imagine that salesman gets into your house, and he sits down, and he brings out all of his charts and all of his samples. And, he, and you meet him, and you observe his behavior, his body language. Does he make eye contact with you as he's talking to you? You listen to their words. You examine all the evidence that they provide. And you, as you do that, you begin to get a sense in your heart, is this person trustworthy or not? And what is happening is as you're seeing them and listening to them and hearing the evidence and observing the examples and all of that, in, in your heart, one of two things is rising up. The repeated desire to get rid of them, number one, or number two, their desire now to, to buy whatever it is they're selling. And in a way, in a similar way, it's the same with faith in God. Not exactly, and I'll explain why. I can observe God's creation. You walk out that door, you, or that door, and look out that window, you go into the, this creation around us, and what do you see? 
the wonders, the beauty, the glory of God's creation. The Bible actually tells us that creation alone is sufficient to give us the full message of the gospel. The Bible says that in Romans chapter 1, I think the later verse is there. We can see that. We can observe the works of God in past times. We can hear or read God's word, God's message of the gospel. And all of those things, the message, the evidence of creation, the word of God, we can observe our neighbors who are believers in Christ and see their behavior. And that is almost enough. But it's not enough at all. It's like so close and yet so far. You say, what's the difference? The difference is that God also works in the process. Unlike the salesman who can't reach inside Porchak's heart and turn the heart over to see what he's saying is true, God can. And God does reach into our lives and he opens the eyes of our heart to see the truth of the gospel and he awakens our hearts to believe. God works, God saves us by simultaneously doing two things. He pours out His grace on us and by simultaneously through hearing the message and observing what we see in creation and other believers' lives, He awakens us to faith and repentance. And as moment we receive that grace, we receive the faith by which we believe and we are saved. Think of it like this. A firefighter comes and he's got a hose with the water going and he wants to get it to Poovin. So he does, he leans back and he throws the whole thing, water and hose to Poovin. And so the moment Poovin grabs that hose, he's holding on to the hose and the water is coming through it. He's got the faith by which the water or the grace comes through to reach him. So God gives us grace by which we're saved, and God gives us the faith by which we receive that grace that we need to be saved. God did it. Why do you do it that? So that none of us could boast. So God gives both the grace by which we are saved and the faith by which we receive that grace. Notice the contrast that now Paul introduces. He says that it is not of yourself. This is in verse number 8 there. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Now, where Paul uses the that, he's referring to you have been saved. And for years, I've thought that that refers to faith. And the reality is, grammatically, it's not quite possible. One's feminine and one's masculine, I think. And it doesn't work. Now, apparently, it, it does work in some cases. But it's better to see it that the that, verse number 8... And that not of yourselves, it's referring to being saved as a whole, not faith specifically. Which, by the way, is great news when you think about it. Because it is not of ourselves. It's not just faith that's of myself. It's the whole thing that's not of myself. I'm not saved by any doing of my own. Salvation includes faith. Salvation includes being made alive and raised up and seated together. Salvation includes the grace, which is the means to our being saved. Salvation includes the faith by which we receive God's grace. Paul's intention, the way he did that, is to emphasize that we are saved by grace by adding to the fact that nothing of salvation comes from us. 
Our salvation is not the product of our efforts or working. Neither is our salvation the result of something we have inherently in us. I was making the comment before about Connor and I boasting. God saved us because we're special. No, God did not save us because we're special. Take your Bibles and flip over to 1 Corinthians just for a sec. We'll read a bit of a passage there. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31, Paul is talking to these Corinthian people. And the Corinthians have put so much emphasis on their wisdom and their understanding. They've divided up into different parties and groups within the church and they're warring against each other. And Paul brings them right down to a common level. This is what he says. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, it says this. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Listen to verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Listen, not only does it not result from something we have inherently, it's also not a result of our works. God didn't look at us and say, well, proven smart will save him, and, and Wes is powerful, we'll save him. You know, uh, Linda's got a great heart, we'll save her. He didn't look around and go and just start picking and choosing. Well, on basis of something inherent in you and me, he looked at him and said, Nelson, he's weak and foolish and unwise and ignoble and all the rest of those things, so we'll save him. In fact, everybody that we're going to save, we're going to save not on the basis of something that they have done. Why? So when we get to heaven, we can't line up and say, well, God saved me because, you know, I'm, I'm wise. And God saved him because, well, you know, <laughs> he's pretty noble. No. We'll get to heaven and we'll stand before God and we'll say, God saved us and we don't know why because there's nothing in us that was worthy of being saved. He saved us so that none of us could boast. Notice also he says it's not a result of works. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot muster up the faith we need to earn the grace of God. For one thing, it would no longer be grace if you could earn it. If you could do enough work, enough good works, if you could live out a life of a 100,000 years of life, and every single second of every single one of those years was lived doing every good work you could lay your hands on, it would not be enough. It's not a result of good works. You cannot earn your salvation. You can come to this church every single Sunday, never miss one. You can read your Bible through cover to cover every single day. You can't earn it. You can give your tithe. You can tithe 200% of your income and you can't earn it. Whatever you can think of that somehow that will achieve or earn your favor with God, you can't do it. Listen. The debt that one single sin created is an infinite debt. 
I heard a question put to R.C. Sproul. It was one of my guys I like to listen to and hear. And, and someone in the Q&A asked him a question. Why did God deal so harshly with Adam and Eve in the garden? And it's the only time in, in 40 years, well, not 40 years, 30 years of my listening to R.C. Sproul, I've ever seen him get angry in a Q&A. And he, and he is, is getting old, and he just snapped. He goes, what's wrong with you people? How can you even ask a question like that? And Heather and I both kind of cringe when he did. He said, you know what the problem is? We don't understand the holiness of God and the greatness of sin. One single sin plunged the whole world into the darkness of sin. One single sin, and Adam and Eve are standing there, and they've been told, the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And God brings an animal out and says, I want to show you what death is. And he kills that animal, and he skins that animal. He takes that skin, that hide, still warm, perhaps even dripping with the blood of the animal, and he pulls it right around them. And in wrapping them with that animal skin, with the blood and the yuck coming down inside of it, they stood there and they all of a sudden realized that their naked was, was covered, but now they were clothed in death. And God cut them off and said, get out of my garden. But on the way out, he said, you know what? There's a promise. One day, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And the great promise was carried out, of course, we know in Christ. The point is this. If that was the judgment on one single sin, how great a debt do you owe to the living God for the sin that you commit? You couldn't pay off the ones you committed in the last 30 minutes. Never mind, in my case, 48 years. In your case, however long you've been alive. We cannot earn it. And what's so sad is we see people trying all sorts of things to somehow earn their way to God. You can't. And the beautiful thing is that God says, you can't earn it, but I will give it to you. I will overload you. I will overshadow you with so much grace and kindness. And I will save you so in that day the only one in whom you will boast is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Hey, what a Savior we have. Amen. We can boast. We can't boast in ourselves, but we can boast in God. The last purpose, the third purpose is this. God saved us to live doing good works. Notice again the text of Scripture, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, some of you know that I'm a, I'm a, not a pastor for 30 years. I've been a preacher for, uh, I don't know, 25 Something like that, years. Um, 26, I think, now. But I was, for 30 years, I was a carpenter and a woodworker. And um, one of the things I loved to do as a, as a woodworker in a woodworking shop was to take scraps of uh, exotic hardwoods, uh, hard maples, purple hearts, some of these beautiful woods, and take them out of the firewood box and, and work on them and shape them and make them into woodworking planes. And I hope you all know what a woodworking plane is. It's like the, you know, the guy shaves and the shaving comes out the end. Um, and you use it to, for all kinds of purposes in woodworking. 
And what we would do is we shape, and, and it looks so easy to do. When I mean, you watch a guy on YouTube doing it, and you read the book, and it just seems so easy. You try and do it yourself. It's really difficult to do. So I discovered as I try to make several of these things. But I've had the opportunity to take, and a friend of mine had some of these beautiful German-made, handmade woodworking planes and, and peel off a shaving so thin you could pull it up to the light and see right through it. Beautiful. The workmanship in that plane was exquisite. The joinery was perfect. It was shaped to fit your hand so it just felt like a glove as you were working, you know. You say, what's the point? What's it got to do with this? You know what we are? We're blocks of timber rescued from the firewood box, taken by a master craftsman, and we are shaped and sanded and joined together and finished, and the, the little sharpened blade is taken and honed to a perfect edge and set inside, and we are God's workmanship. This sentence is like a summary. He's summarizing everything he said up to this point from in verse 1. All that God's work in you is God's master craftsmanship. That's what it means. God is working in your life. He has taken you out of the firewood box quite literally. You were destined for the wrath of God. And God is now working in your life to shape you and fashion you and form you and make you into a tool that can then be used to craft something else that God can take you. And in the hands of a master craftsman, he can begin to work on other people. One of the coolest things in the world, take one woodworking plane and use it to make another woodworking plane and use that plane to make another plane and so on and so on. What's the point? The beautiful thing is that God is working in your life. He has shaped you and fashioned you and formed you. He is making you into the image of Christ so that he can then take you and make somebody else into the image of Christ and use you as his tool to work on somebody else. We are his master craftsmanship. The work of God in us, it may seem slow at times, and I understand that. We were sitting around last night talking a little bit, Heather and I, about ministry and some of the sadness and frustration. And why, is, why are things going the way they're going? Why, why are the sermons, I don't know what you're thinking, why are the sermons so long and the, and the, and the time between so short? Why, why is my life just not seem to be going the way? I want God to do more in my life. I want to be further ahead. I want to be more in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to have better relationships with those in the church that I'm alongside of. I want to work together with the other fellow workers in the faith to build the body of Christ, to be used of God. And listen, as much as it may sound or may seem like your work is going so slow, be assured of this fact, that God began a work in your life. He rescued you out of that timber bin, the firewood bin, and He is slowly, steadily working in your life to make you not just like a woodworking plane, but to make you in the image of Jesus Christ. So that when he then puts you alongside somebody else, he can then use you to shape them, to feed scripture in their lives, to pray for them, to walk alongside them, to weep with them, to cry with them, to pray with them, to laugh with them, so that they get made more like Christ and more into his image. 
God is changing you. You are radically different than you were before. The Bible says you have a new heart. You're dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You have new relationships with God and with your Christian brothers and sisters. They are the workmanship of God. You are the workmanship of God. Your old relationships will change. Everything you had and shared with those old unbelieving friends has now been changed. God's given you new passions, new desires, new loves. When I was younger, you'd never believe it looking at me now, but I used to love sports. And uh, when I got saved, I was uh, about 13 years of age. I was at a boys camp over in Anvil Island in British Columbia. And I played hockey and football and soccer. And (laughs) I didn't do the running around part. I was always in goal, right, where you could stay still. You didn't have to run around. (laughs) But I love sports. I hated reading. Oh, man. You want to punish me? Read this, right? Oh, no. And I came up to camp, and I had a Bible they'd given me at uh, um, Sutherland Bible Chapel, a little old brown NIV 1970s Bible, and I had it under my arm, you know, and I got saved on Monday, and I played sports for all I was worth when we had to play sports, but as soon as free time was coming, you know, you found me, laying on my bunk with my Bible open, the guy who hated reading his Bible, the guy who hated reading, period, now couldn't get enough. It was a new passion in my life to know the Word of God. I was just trying to figure it out. I was reading, I, just, I was flipping all over. Jeremiah, Lamentations, John, Ephesians, whatever. It's back and forth trying to figure the whole thing out. But all of a sudden it was alive to me. And listen, God's workmanship in your life is He will give you new desires, new passions to live for Him, to know His Word, to know Him deeply. Paul had from the height of Jewish society as a young Pharisee and a rabbi. And you know, he said, everything that makes me something, I count it as human waste to compare to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, being conformed to his sufferings. It goes on. He said, I've given everything else up. Push it all away that I may know him. And that's God's workmanship in his life. It's God's workmanship in your life too. To put new desires there. You'll feel different. You'll no longer carry the burden of guilt and of sin as God works in your life. We are created in Christ Jesus. That's the circumstances in which God worked in our lives to make us new creatures in Christ We are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. And that's the final, the purpose of it all. God has created us and saved us and given us his grace that we might do good works. Now, you're not saved by doing good works. You're saved to do good works. The evidence of your faith is the works that you do. Read through the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 11. You know what you see? By faith, he did this. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah built. By faith, Abraham left. By faith, and so on and so on and so on. I can't remember them all. But every single one of them, faith was the driving factor, and they did something. There was a work that flowed out of it. And God has saved you, rescued you from the scrap heap and the firewood box so that you might do good works. Why? So we can all say, way to go, Con." Slap him on the back. He did a great work. 
No, it's so that we together can stand there and say, Praise be to the Lord God of heaven, who has prepared good works for us to do to glorify His name together. God saved us for His purposes. Now, you can already figure it out. I've skipped over a lot of the last point for sake of time. But God saved us for great purposes. He saved us to display the riches of His grace. Not just to you, not just to your neighbor, but to all of creation for all of eternity. God saved you by grace, not of works, not because there's anything inherently good in you, so that you might not boast in any except in Jesus Christ. And he saved us so that we might do good works. We might be his workmanship to work in the lives of each other. And Paul, if you actually figure it out, he's, he's transitioning just slightly into his next main topic. His workmanship for good works is the idea leading into how we work together as the church to preach the gospel and build one another up and see the nation saved for the glory of God. Does that make sense? Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, and then we'll sing the benediction together. Loving Father, we give you thanks this morning for our Savior. And Father, just to try and comprehend for a few moments the riches of grace, your grace. Father, we look outside this room and we see the riches of common grace that you have given to every creature that walks this earth. And we marvel at that, O oh God. But then we realize that the riches of saving grace in Christ that separated us, that took dead creatures and made them alive with Christ. And Father, you raised us up like Lazarus. You called us out of the tomb. You took the grave clothes off of us and you clothed us in robes of righteousness. Father, you then took us and began to shape us and you're still working in our lives to make us into useful tools to be used by the master craftsman. And Father, if I look at my own life for a moment, I see that there is much work yet to be done. Oh God, we cry out to you as a church, as a company of people who are believers in Jesus Christ. We see the promise of Scripture that you who began a good work are going to complete it. And Father, we are asking you today to finish your work in us. Make us more like Jesus this day, we pray. Father, we pray that as we go from this place, our hearts would be singing with joy, knowing that you have saved us boasting nothing in ourselves but all in Jesus. Father, we ask you for your blessing on Noble Park Baptist Church. Father, for all those that are standing here in this room with me, Lord, we together cry out to you to do a work in our lives. Father, take the word of God 
that was read, John chapter 2 and Mark chapter uh, 6 and Ephesians chapter 2, Lord. Take them and, and work them into our lives. Father, I pray today that the Holy Spirit would have freedom in each of our lives to apply the scriptures that we have open before us into our lives. Father, I cry out to you also that my voice would be forgotten, but the words of scripture, your spirit speaking into the heart of every single one of us would ring long and loud and true that we would hear Father, we also ask you that we would not be like the man in James who looked at his face in a mirror and walked away immediately forgetting what he looked like. But Father, having looked into the word of God, that we would go away and obey what it calls us to do. That we would go from this place, Father, with a desire to glorify God in our lives the way we live with a desire to submit to the work of God to make us like Christ. Father, we ask you all these things. We plead with you again, O God, for your help, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.